Hello, it's time for another episode of the Ramos Law Difference Makers podcast in conjunction with Positive Impact. So this is going to be an incredible show, and I hope you all that are listening enjoy this because I have an opportunity today to visit with not only someone who has become an incredible friend and a sort of um, mental or spiritual mentor to me, but also someone who is absolutely a joy as a personality, and she's got so much wisdom to share in such few years, like you're way too young to be having all this wisdom that you're going to spout today. But uh, our guest today is Carrie Ramos and Carrie comes a long way uh, in that she works at Ramos Law, but she lives in Nevada. So she happens to be here. So I had the opportunity to sit down right now with Carrie and talk all things about her life and where she's going and how she's working with uh, clients. And so this is going to be a great show. So sit back, relax and enjoy our conversation with Carrie. So Carrie Ramos, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to just have the time with you. Right? This is something. And yes. you and I have, we spend time on the phone together on clients. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had tons of time together with our families being close and uh, just sharing, right? Having yeah. a chance to talk about life and projects and uh, histories and pasts and politics and all these things that that are deep and they're yes. enriching and they can be controversial, but somehow we find a way to navigate that together. And that's why I was so excited to have you. Uh, thank you. It's part of why I was so excited to get here and to do this. Excellent. Well, let's start on this. I want to hear your journey because for those people who don't know, well, might as well, let's get this out of the barn. <laughs> you are uh, Dr. Joe Ramos's sister. Yes. And um, Joe has been on the podcast and he and I had great response from that show where a lot mm-hmm. of people said that they were so inspired and that they really learned a lot from that show. And um, I'm I'm really interested to hear not your experience from Dr. Ramos's sister, but your experience growing up in this small town as as a, a, as he said a, a little pack of puppies, right? You guys would all <laughs> you were all piled into this this trailer, and, do, yes. and I don't want to steal all the story, but can you just give your experience of growing up in that environment, small town, lots of kids? What was that like? You know, I love that you bring that up because it's one of my favorite parts of my life. Because when you grow up in a town, there's less than 100 people there. There's eight kids in our family. So, you know, our ratio in that town is pretty high. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, you were 10% of the population. (laughs) Yeah, Um, There were 27 kids in my school. Um, When I moved away, that left one person in my graduating class. You know, so it's a tiny town. But the best part about that is that you learn to really love people. Because if you hear an ambulance, you know that person. If you hear a helicopter coming in, you're, I mean, it impacts you immediately, which is so different from living in a city where, you know, you see an ambulance and, you know, you may say a prayer as you pass by or, you know, or something, but, you know, oftentimes you'll hear people complain about it slowing up traffic or creating a jam, right? Where you, you just were raised with a different filter. We were raised with a different filter because of that. So I think it made us um, very sensitive to other people's needs. And then, you know, having a dad as a mechanic and, um, you know, kind of these family businesses, we just very early on worked hard and worked a lot. Uh, But we also had a ton of fun because we had horses and farm animals and, you know, my dad was a rancher. and, And so that also... You know, if you wanted to do something, you just saddled up a horse and went into the mountains. Um, So we were never bored. We were never looking for something to do. Um, Otherwise, my parents were the type who would give you something to do. So I (laughs) think that was helpful. No, No, their work was usually much harder. Um, And so, you know, I I think it really crafted my siblings and I to be 
um, to be hard workers, to be compassionate, to um, really care about getting out in the world. And we're all very, very curious. So I love the time that I have with my my siblings. And then to work, you know, for my brother, it he's one of the most inspiring people I know anyway. So then to be able to have him as your brother too. I mean, I really, I just feel like the luckiest girl. That's incredible. Did yeah. you see as you were, now how much difference in age between you guys? I think there's about 15 years. So okay. I'm the sixth and he's the first. Okay. So in that time with him, by the time you were even born and starting to get conscious about the world, mm -hmm. he was kind of finishing high school, right? Close, in, in that age. Do yeah. you remember what what he was like and was there a lot of influence that he played on the rest of the the kids being the oldest oh yeah he's he's absolutely the biggest impact on our whole family mm. i mean he plays a huge role and more so i think because of his just innate gifts that he has mm -hmm. it's not just that he's the first in the family um he's so kind and compassionate like i remember one time he came home from college and he had this sports car. He was always the hardest worker of all of us. Still is to this day. Um, you just cannot outwork the guy, no I, matter I how it. hard you try. I, I know. I'm in his own yeah. trying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he really, and he's always been that way. From the time we were young, he would have us, like, and he, he's a great organizer, too. He would have us going and checking the jukeboxes to collect the coins because he'd buy a jukebox and, you know, save up money, buy a jukebox, then buy another one and put them in all these little bars in the towns nearby. And then we'd all be collecting coins for him and counting them and doing all these things and then he'd buy a cigarette machine and you know that's when cigarette machines were in back then and you know all sorts of stuff so we always had businesses going and um so I remember he worked really hard and he bought this sports car and he was getting ready to leave to college um back to college the next day and so I woke up really really early in the morning like it was still dark outside and his sports car was covered in ice and which you can imagine that makes it difficult to drive out. So yes. I had, you know, plowed the snow behind his car so he could get out. And then I took, I was too little to understand, uh -oh. but I took an ice scraper first to his windshield yeah. and then I took it to his car <laughs> because there was ice on the car. Yeah. And you didn't want him driving with ice. That could be no, horrible. And how terrible to come out to an ice covered car. So I am scraping the ice and the paint off of the car, but I'm, I'm really doing a great job. <laughs> yes. And, and you're so proud. You're helping him. I am him. so proud. Yes. And you know, you would think in a moment like that, a young college kid who's, you know, working really hard to try to do this, he would be so frustrated. And I remember when I saw his face, I knew something was wrong. But when I heard his voice, I knew everything was okay. Wow. And that is exactly him. I mean, he came out and he's like, oh, sister, thank you so much. You did such a great job. Wow, look at you. I mean, he just really, I, and can you imagine having the patience to do that in a moment where you really, I don't know that I would have that patience now. Yes. And as a young man, he had that, you know, and he just, thank you so much. Now here's why we can't use this side of the ice scraper, but this is perfect. You did a great job, you wow. know, and he's carried that through. I have story after story where after he was married, I, you know, was weeding for him and his wife when they were gone and apparently these uh, 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 I forget what the name of these dang flowers I could think of it anyway I had pulled all of her brand new flowers <laughs> thinking they were weeds and <laughs> 
<laughs> and I remember when they came home and he sees these big weed bags and he's like, thank you so much. And his wife is about in tears and she's just like, sister, you pulled all of my flowers. And he immediately pulls into the same role. What a great job. You know what? Those flowers must not have been very good anyway if they could be confused for weeds. You know, so he just, and that's what he's like as a boss. He's, he is a hard boss to have if you're not used to having someone who expects a lot. Yep. But if you are, I mean, you know this. It's why I, you know, I used to work for him in his medical clinics and in some of his other businesses. And it's why when I realized I could work for him in law, I I couldn't wait. Yes. Because he really, he is such a true leader and he he's decisive and he's he's quick to, to make decisions. I mean, I remember watching him in the emergency room and um, there was a case one time where a man was, his um, stomach was just inflating. I mean, you could see the stomach just rise, rise, rise. And um, they called in Dr. Ramos and he comes in and he, in a, an instant, stabs this man in the, in the side with this scalpel. And this nurse turned to me and she said, this is why we love working for your brother. Mm. She said he is decisive. And she said that man would have died, but most physicians wouldn't have had the confidence or the quick frame of mind to be able to make a decision that quickly and save his life. Wow. And, you know, it's it's moments like that. I mean, I I could bore you with the stories of just how good he is. But the better part of all of that is... You know, he's confident enough to know that he knows his, his stuff, mm-hmm. but he's the most humble man that I know. Absolutely. And to work for someone like that, you know, you feel like you could get so good and all while enjoying it and while really having true support. I mean, he'd, he'd do anything he needed for his employees. Right, you know? right. And he deeply, deeply loves people. I mean, he's the only person that I've ever been around that I think I need to be more kind. I am usually very kind and I feel, you know, I feel good with that. Yes, and you and, are, by the way. You're incredibly <laughs> kind. But when I am around him, I am like, Carrie, you could really step up your kindness game. Uh, well, I'll <laughs> tell you, I'll tell you um, we haven't even mentioned this as part of the show yet, but you, when you mention working for him, you are an attorney as well. Mm-hmm. And so before we get to that, I want to rewind because that environment, being with, with an overachiever and obvious, yeah. I, I call him basically um, my unicorn, mm-hmm. right? Like oh, he, yeah. just so rare, so unique. And so living that environment, your parents incredibly wonderful people. I've had the chance to know both of them and, and your dad and your mom couldn't be more different, right? They're (laughs) very, very different. Uh, one very disciplinarian and very by the book and one just kind and and incredibly compassionate, but very wise. And so from your perspective as, as you know, down the list of children, as you were growing up, did you experience any kind of, um, were, were you lonely in the sense of you were in such small town with friends, but the family filled all that void for you? Or did you realize there's not a lot of people around? What was there? T- tell me about that growing up something so small. Yeah, you know, you don't really realize that your environment is different. And so growing up in that, I was never lonely. Our house was always full of, you know, not only our kids and foster kids, but also our, our friends. Mm. And so we always had a lot of people in and out. But I think... Probably more so we had the opportunity because it's a much slower life to have true connections with people. So it wasn't so much about the number of people as it was that when you're going through things in a small town, you go through things with people pretty closely and whether that's good or bad. And so I think in that way, I I was never lonely. I always 
had siblings who were either there to, you know, play with to completely you know razz you to no end yes or to um or to defend you if you needed it. i mean you just really we had such a great community right um both as a family and as you know as a town yeah so in that i was i was never lonely um and there was just a different it's just different because it's slower yeah and what did you guys do for um i don't know lack of a better term, your development in like, were you really into sports? Were you into mm-hmm. theater and drama and all these kinds of things growing up? What was, what was your thing growing up in that kind of environment? I didn't get into like theater and that sort of stuff until college. Um, but because the towns that I lived in were so small, right. we didn't have that. Right. Um, but, um, yeah, sports were a huge thing for us. Sports, um, camping, hunting, fishing. Um, so any outdoors, activities um those were mainly mainly at like sports and outdoors yes and as you you and i have had this conversation so I, i'm anxious for the listeners to get to share this piece of your life a little bit you're doing sports you're going about your business and you get a dare from someone <laughs> oh, no. and so i would really like for you to share that because not many people are going to have no. insight into what we're about to talk about because i never talk about it, it you never talk about it but i think it's a really cool part of your history and i think it has helped uh, round you. your character and yeah. um give you some really unique experiences so what was the dare and how did you go about that oh business? man so um, this girl in high school, at this point I had moved to Winnemucca, Nevada, and this wonderful, wonderful girl, Katie, she came up to me in front of my friend Sarah, and Sarah and I, you know, we were all about, like, horses and rodeo, and so it was a very, very different um, life, when then Katie walks up and says, Carrie, you would be so good at pageants. Beauty pageants. Like, Beauty pageants. Beauty mm-hmm. pageants. I am like... Oh no, <laughs> you have the wrong girl. She's like, no, the Miss America pageant is one of those that, you know, it's all about volunteering and really being involved in your community and you're so involved, this would be right down your alley. And I am thinking, you are crazy. There is no way that I would ever get in high heels and a swimsuit to walk across the stage in front of people. <laughs> that is a terrible idea. Well, my friend Sarah thought this was awesome. And she said, I dare you to do it. And at first I pushed that off. No, never. You know, nice try. You do it. And she said, no, that's, a, that's an official dare. Where I was too young and how old <laughs> are you egotistical, I was probably... Oh, I don't know, 16 or 17, yep. maybe. Yep. And um, so I was too young and egotistical to turn down a dare and said, like, okay, fine, fine, I'll do it. And as the time got closer and closer, I just, <laughs> I, I mean, the time really crunched down on me. And finally, the day before um, the pageant, they asked, um, what did they say? Oh, they were doing the check-in for the pageants and said, okay, so uh, Carrie, what's your talent? And I said, oh, I'm not going to do that part. And she said, you have to do that part or you can't participate. Well, I knew I couldn't lose the dare. And so I called up a friend who had, we had competitively cheered together. And so I asked him, I said, hey, will you help me put together a dance? Because, and he said, girl, you don't dance. (laughs) (laughs) He he knew that (laughs) And he was so right. I'm a horrible dancer. (laughs) Still to this day, it just has never been a gift I've (laughs) I've come across. And so, yeah, so he put together this terrible Janet Jackson 
dance the, the that he would have nailed before. the day before yeah. and came over and spent all night with me learning this dance. I forget the dance halfway through on stage. It is the most mortifying circumstance you could be in because you're standing up there shrugging your shoulders to the beat because you have no <laughs> other option. And, and because I'm not a dancer, I don't have any other backups that I could just go to. And I had zero confidence to be able to just like, who cares? Just do it. Yep. And so eventually make it through the dance and end up scoring really high. And so um, that was kind of my entrance into the Miss America pageant world. And yep. so for, you know, years I did that and had a lot of really, um, you know, a lot of good success with it that led mm -hmm. to a lot of great scholarships. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and I think, that, you know, really the whole point of the pageant stuff, I think for me was really one, I got to see what you can do if you have a title behind your name. Um, I remember one time. And what title did you have? Well, <laughs> there was a number, but at one point, um, I think at this at this point related to the story was uh, for Miss Nevada. Yeah, uh, and that's and so, what I wanted to get out there. It, yeah. So, um, <laughs> so I had reached out to an organization um, in preparation for the pageant and said, "Hey, I'd really like to come and do this um, juvenile diabetes fundraiser or whatever." And I remember they said, "Oh, we're we're all full. We'll look you up next time, and we'll have you, you know, come and help." But right now we have all the volunteers we can take. And I hung up the phone and called them back. And said, um, hi, you know, and, and gave my title. And I said, I just called, but I didn't know if this would make a difference. And they said, oh, my gosh, let's have you be the celebrity volunteer. And we'll do a special fundraiser. And da -da -da. and we ended up raising a lot of money for them. Wow. But it was a really good lesson for me at such a young age to learn that um, I wanted to do things a little bit differently in that way. Mm -hmm. And that don't wait for someone to have a title because really the only thing that got me there was a little hard work and a lot of good luck. And, you know, that shouldn't have been enough to mm -hmm. really get me through the door. And I never want to allow other people, you know, I never want to put people in that position. Wow. Uh, to, you know, what's great about what like you that. just said is as you were talking about that with me, my interpretation of it was, Okay, so what that tells us is we're all important, but sometimes to get the really important things done, you have to be willing to go the extra mile to yeah. get the quote unquote title, whether that's the degree or that the whatever it is. But the way you interpret it was the opposite, that you as a person who can give an opportunity, you shouldn't look at the title. You need to take everything into account. And I think both sides of that are beautiful. What a beautiful coin. They really are. And you know, it's funny because it's how I want to operate is the side of don't wait for somebody's title because there's a lot of good talent and a lot of good people who are willing to give a lot and do a lot um, without a title. Oh, so that's how so I want to operate on my side. Yes. But I also know the other side is reality. It's what drove me to law school. I was doing a lot of work that you know, I would pass off to attorneys to get different laws passed and things like that and pass them off to attorneys to sign their names and then we would move forward on it. And I remember thinking, oh no, th <laughs> those two letters actually mean something. Yes. You've got to go because you don't always want to be hopeful that there's someone who believes in the same things you believe in to mm. be able to get things forward. That's so good. And if all that is, is, you know, a few years of law school and, you know, a few years of studying and bar passage and all those things. If that's all that is in four years, you're going to either, you know, be a licensed attorney and be able to do these things. Or in four years, you're going to be the same in the same place. Right. Right. So, so true. You, so you might as well do that with your time. Absolutely. Right? Especially so, when you know what you want. And, you know, that yeah. takes us to that next chapter. So you've gone through growing up and then you go through the pageant phase and then you end up in advocacy and mm -hmm. I think 
it's really, really such an important part of, of your journey. And I think, you know, I've known you since you were young, yeah. right? Since you were yeah. very young. Uh-huh. And so to watch you grow from a great human mm. to an incredibly impactful human for a series of specific people in need, I think it's something that's worth telling. So can you talk mm. about that chapter when you yeah. really went into advocacy? Absolutely. So when I was in high school, I was a victim of sexual assault and it was by my doctor. And I was, it just shut me down. I didn't know what to do. And being in a small town, you don't have a lot of people there to stand up against people who are powerful in that community. Right. So I remember for a long time, I shut that down. I just thought I will never speak about this. There were a lot of death threats associated with it, a lot of scary things. And so I thought, nope, he's right. I, I will stay silent until, you know, until my, my deathbed essentially. Well, thankfully, as time kind of wore, you know, moved forward, I learned that that wasn't going to be good for me. I was taking a really bad path. I was drinking a lot. And there were just a lot of things that were real heavy Mm -hmm. that I knew for me, I was kind of living out all my trauma. And Mm. so um, I became suicidal. And I had a friend who came to me and she said, I don't know if this has anything to do with you. All I know is that you act a lot like I used to act when I was trying to hide sexual abuse. And she said, and so I'm going to give you this. And she passed across the table this brochure to a support group. She said, I'm going to give you this. I'm going to leave it here. I hope it doesn't offend you. And I remember thinking, your secret's out. Whether or not you know it, other people see you and they realize that you're not doing what you should be. You can smile all day long. You can keep this good facade. You can be this, you know, pageant girl and radio and TV and all this stuff that looks very, very much like you have it together. And on the inside, you're not doing well. And so what I did was I started going to the support group. And for other survivors, they can probably relate to this. And that, mm-hmm. you know, you show up early and you sit in your car and you wait outside and you're like, nah, you know what? I'm fine. I don't need this. <laughs> you know what? I've, I've just been being very dramatic about this in my head. I, I can just leave. And thankfully, the reason that I bring up the suicide portion of it, uh, that ideology of it, was that um, for me, that's what drove me to really get authentic about who I am because I knew I didn't have another choice and I knew I had a wonderful life and a wonderful family and so many things to live for but this wasn't gonna this would continue to grow and to kind of haunt me unless I started to address it and so it started there and um, then one time I was sitting so I used to work in radio and I was sitting in this meeting with this, they brought in the like CEO of, um, it was Citadel Radio at the time. And I remember we were all sitting there, all of us on air jocks, we were sitting there in this meeting. And I'm looking around the room and I see that everybody in that room at one point or another had come to me and said, I, I'm creating a side gig. I got to do something else. There's, you know, this wasn't fulfilling enough for any of yeah. us. It was wonderful. It was fun. It was a major party. And at the time, that was kind of my, you know, my priority. Yes. Just to really to stay out of the pain. And so I'm looking around and I thought, what are you waiting for? Are you waiting to, to just continue to do what's fun and not do what, not really strike out and do what matters to you? And so as the meeting's going on, I'm thinking, what does matter to me? And what would this be? And they let us out on a two-minute break. And I ran to my cubicle and I didn't even sit down in my chair. I remember reaching over the back of my office chair and typing onto my computer um, into, it was some online job site search, um, sexual assault. 
And I thought, oh my gosh, <laughs> I hope the FBI doesn't look at these things. I don't know what they'll come for, right? And two minutes before, which is funny, it's a two minute break. They let us out, you know, um, and then two minutes prior, the um, job posting for the director of the Nevada Coalition Against Sexual Violence had been posted. Oh, and no way. I didn't even know what that was. I didn't know what it meant. I just knew I had been volunteering for, you know, to help domestic violence victims and, and, um, and other victims, but I didn't, I didn't realize that that coalition existed or what it would do. And I thought, well, here's what I'll do. I will submit an application. I do not qualify at all. I have zero, <laughs> zero backing to be able to get this job. But what I'll do is I'll put it in. Whoever gets the job, I will then reach out to them and find out what qualifications do you have? What? Because it was just kind of an inner knowing of like, I can do better than this. I've been getting better on my own. Now it's time to kind of help other people because if wow. I was that quiet and I come from a loud family and you know, we all have pretty strong backbones and we're pretty vivacious, if I can do that and it can take me to a whole nother place, then what about the other people who are out there? Yes. You know, so it was, it was just kind of a calling. And um, to make a very long story short, they threw my resume into the interview pile to warm up the judges or like the panelists yes um i was never actually to be considered for this job and i later found that out um but <laughs> the scheduler got me mixed up and i couldn't make it because i was still working so i had to move my appointment for my interview so i got thrown in after they started interviewing candidates so then they thought well that's fine We'll just throw her in, keep the interview, and but we know she's not going to get it. And I got, I got the job. And wow. so, did they ever tell you what that was about you that made that happen versus all these quote unquote qualified folks? Yeah. So it's funny, you know, like where where our weaknesses are also our strengths. Um, that backbone that I was telling you about. Mm -hmm. They said that when we were in there, they had um, they noticed that I had some promise, um, but they didn't know how I would respond if they challenged me to things. And so they were trying to challenge some, you had to give a presentation. And so they were trying to challenge me during the presentation on things. And they liked that I just was able to hold my ground, but also be able to really, you know, kind of address the concerns, but also still, you know, stay within, sure. the, you know, within what I needed to get across. And um, so they said that was part of it. Um, and then also just that they could tell I was eager to learn, which I think is you know, part of that small town mentality is that, you know, we were really curious about what the rest of the world held and mm. I'm still that way. And so in that, you know, I, w I wanted to know what is the solution. I, kn I knew what the problem was and I didn't share with them that I was a survivor, but, um, for me, I wanted to know why do people continue to get away with this and what do we need to do to, to address it? And it was actually, it ended up being the perfect, um, department really because, the Department of Justice funds it in order to be able to train law enforcement, therapists, um, you know, count, um, school counselors, you know, to really provide a lot of good education and investigations and things like that. So I had to go through a lot of training wow. to be able to then do that. Okay. But the good part of that was that um, I was always solution oriented, mm -hmm. you know, because and what was the goal? It what was the main focus me. that you guys did? As, a, as an organization for the people that you served? You know, I think um, some of the biggest focus while I was there was to make sure that law enforcement investigations were victim-centered. 
So I did a lot of work with human trafficking and the FBI and then, you know, um, jurisdictions like statewide jurisdictions and local jurisdictions to work with victims in a way that gives them the information that they need. So instead of interrogating victims, you interview them. Um, and that's a big difference. You know, you interrogate suspects. You want to push them into a corner and, and, you know, get them to a point where they almost panic to tell the truth, right? Mm-hmm. Now, there's better ways to do that than but just to kind of create a stark difference in such a short amount of time that's kind of how I would sum that up when you look at interviewing victims um, that's not how you're going to get a good response because they've been under a lot of trauma and so it's more likely that victims shut down and um, you know they don't give you the information that they need because this is so personal and so intimate and there's so many fears that come along with that that just to be believed is sometimes this uphill battle where if any of us, I mean, if we're trying to convince other people to believe us, we almost become less believable. Right. You know, I mean, and that's just with any story. If I were trying to convince you that this were true, you would start to wonder, what am I hiding? Yeah. Why are you trying to convince me so much? Yeah. Why don't you just assume that I believe you? Yes. But in a culture where we don't really believe victims first because that would then mean that we'd have to believe that the people we love and trust could commit those crimes that they're bad yeah Yeah. and that sometimes good people do bad things right so Mm -hmm. in that that kind of um that was one of the things that was really important to me was to make sure that you know we can tell people all day long and we have a lot of good organizations who do this this part of the work for us right they say go tell 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 report 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 keep reporting until someone believes you but if you don't prepare the people to whom they're reporting to believe them they never will it will shut down the work at the front because now people will stop reporting so then you have a lot of people doing a lot of hard work that's not not working out well and that's where i if i'm putting the pieces together it was mm-hmm. through that where you were taking some of that information having to get attorneys assigned it to move it forward yes that's what really made you say i've got to take this next step yes is so you go to law school yeah with so the intention of doing that is that why you went to law school going back to that world well um so there were a couple things um the da in my case didn't handle it very well um and i can say that even as an attorney you know sometimes as a victim you you think that people aren't handling it well and mm-hmm. and then you learn from the other side like no they were really doing their best and these were the things they were up against um the one in my circumstance you know, had a lot of pressure um to not do the right thing and so that w- was always kind of this idea in the back of my head okay. of wait a second if I ever had the chance, but see at the time I didn't think, my family wasn't big into education mm-hmm. and, and especially not higher education. It was kind of like, you know, do good in school because that's a respectful human thing to do, but don't, you know, like then have babies and, right. you know, like yeah. be a really good wife. And, you know, those were kind of the things that, that my family valued. Mm-hmm. So it, at the time I didn't have a mindset that I was quote unquote smart enough to go to law school, right? And I still don't like that because that doesn't, that's not what makes someone a good attorney, right? Is being smart enough. But when you're young and you think like, that's my, that's the threshold. Yeah, the benchmark. Yep. So for me, I would always kind of tell myself, man, if I were ever smart enough, I would go to law school. And I'd really do things differently for people. And then as I started doing this work and um, I worked on the Victims of Crime Subcommittee under the Attorney General, and there were so many times where the attorney general would say, hey, Carrie, can you do this? Hey, Carrie, can you do this? I, and then I would have to go to another attorney and say, why don't you 
put like your name on this so that it carries a lot of weight, you know, review it and, and do that. But then, then we can present it as it having a lot more clout. Right. And the attorney general was, she just believed in me and she always saw, you know, she would always say, you should really consider this. And then I had a case where I had, um, trained law enforcement in this little tiny community. Um, and they called and said, Hey, we're having some trouble with the prosecutor up here. He won't prosecute teachers. And um, so we had to get the attorney generals, they have a, another division, we had to get them involved to send in another special prosecutor to be able to prosecute some of these crimes that that DA wouldn't prosecute. And one of the prosecutors called me, she said, they're going to hold me in contempt because I won't turn over this victim's, um, her psychology records. Wow. And I said, well, you can't, it's against the law. You know, the victim has a right to not have those turned over. And she said, um, yeah, well, they're going to hold me in contempt. So what does that mean? What do I do now? And I'm thinking, I don't know. <laughs> I, just, you know I just know that you can't. But And so I called the Victim Law Center. The It's a Victims of Crime Victim Law Center. And I called and said, hey, I need your help because we've got this attorney who's going to go to jail. And they helped me to be able to get her out because she did eventually go to jail. He held her in contempt. So um, so we get her out. And during all of this, the attorney there at the Victim Law Center keeps saying, you really should go to law school. You think a lot like a lawyer. You, you really should. You really should. And I would always take it as a compliment and then push it off. No, well, thank you so much. And, you know, nope, I'll leave that to, to you guys, the smart ones. You guys just lead me what, you know, and what to do on the ground. And um, finally, one day I thought, what are you doing? You keep, I, my professors would always write it on there. You've got to be a trial attorney. You need, you know, I do research for, for um, attorneys on, you know, jury selection and, and how juries would respond. Like, you would be who I would hire today. You know, all these things. And I thought, that is so cool. What a, yes. what a great compliment. But I never had the confidence. And finally, I thought, you're going to let that, <laughs> you're going to let confidence be the thing. At the end of your lifetime, you're going to look back and say, I just didn't have enough confidence. No way, not on, not on this watch. You're not, mm. and so um, so I applied to um, to law school, and ended up getting in, and um, and just the response right away from you know I received some really sweet letters from deans on my applications, which was such a cool. Yeah. That's not usual. They don't usually do that. You know, it's just such a cool motivator. Right. And and you know, life is just good that way. That that was exactly what I needed to convince me that I could do something in law school. You know right? what's impressive about that? I just did a little bit on this this morning, talking about your belief system and what possibilities are. And I think there are some people that are naturally wired that they believe the very best of themselves, right? Mm -hmm. they're, gonna, they're gonna kick it. They're always yep. gonna take things by storm. They're gonna make it happen. And there's a lot of us, I mean a lot of us yeah. that are not in that place where for those, our possibility is nurtured by someone who believes in us, at least at some point, more than we believe in ourselves. And I, I hear yes. you saying that. Is that something that you found to be true? Because I know that's how it's worked in my life. I needed people to believe in me more till I got the momentum yes. in order to start seeing the results to foster my own beliefs. Yes. And you know what's funny? So, you know, Dr. Ramos, he is the first kind. He just believes and he goes and he sets it, knocks it down. He doesn't think about whether or not somebody believes in him. Yes. He just does it. And we were raised in the same household by the same parents, right? And I am the exact opposite. But I think what the difference, at least when I look at him, I'm, I think, well, he has the spirit that can stay really humble in that, right? And for me, I need a little more of this belief or something. And what it's done is it's helped me, one, to realize that 
you can still do a lot of really great things without confidence. Just do it. And then, you know, for me, I would say, well, where's my track record? If, if I'm not doing enough to create a track record, then no wonder why I don't have confidence. Yes. Do something. Yes. And then look and see, do you, now do you have confidence, right? Great. So that's kind of helped to drive me. But it's also helped me to stay um, mindful about one, passing out compliments and beliefs. Because if there are people around me who need that, then I know how important that is Absolutely. because I'm not someone who comes by that honestly. Right. And the other thing is, is it's created a bit of a fight in me too, because if someone doesn't see it in me, or if I feel a little bit of that pushback because of, you know, like your kindness being taken for weakness, that sort of thing. Right. Um, then it builds up this fire in me okay. where I go, okay, that's all right. It almost calls me out on the nonsense that I play to myself, those messages and self-beliefs that, you know, if you don't call yourself out on them, you'll get stuck under them. Yes. And so it almost forces me to do that because I go, wait a second, you can, you can do this. And unless you've tried it and failed multiple times, not just failed a couple times, but like <laughs> failed multiple times, then you don't have a right to say that you can't do it. You know, I've Love been given that. space on this planet to do something. Lots of somethings. Yeah. Great somethings. Yeah. So it's like, so if I'm the one not using up my own real estate, that's my problem. That can't blame it on a lack of confidence or whatever. Those right. things may weigh in, but they can't be the deciding factor of it. Oh, you know? man, that's brilliant. See, we just went into a little self-improvement there. <laughs> I love this. I, this show has been amazing, amazing. Oh, and and I want to bring it now back to what you're doing now. So. Yeah. You, I'm interested to hear the transition because you have deep roots in this um, service of victims. Yeah. And then you transition. Was, was there a time where you're like, okay, my, my heart is just, uh, I need to move in a different direction because it's caused so much pain or I'm not making enough difference? Or how do, you, how do you end up transitioning from that passion into the current one of serving people in more of an injury sense that have been hurt for, through no fault of their own. Yeah. How did that transition take place? You know, so much of the same skill set really falls over to that, right? Because we work for victims of, of crashes and slip and falls and, you know, of other people's negligence. And because of my work with sexual assault victims, I'm able to really see kind of where people go in trauma because car accidents and, and you know, these these negligent acts and the, and the result of them, they really do lead to a lot of trauma for people. Mental, emotional, and physical. Yes, absolutely. And and enough that we're not really talking enough about it. You know, we, we talk about the damages and the, and the specials and the, you know, litigation side of it. But we don't often really talk about what people are going through. And that's one of the things that I love about Ramos Law is we, as a team, we mm -hmm. collectively are all very invested in people. And so to be able to to really pull out what people's lives are like, we get to share that then with adjusters to change the way that we reach, you know, settlements. And what I love in that is that people's stories get told. Absolutely. And that's what matters. Every client that I have, that's what matters to them. You know, did you hear me? Do you believe me? Um, does what happened to me matter to you? And so all of that work has really trans transitioned over to this pretty well. Um, for me, I was at the Los Angeles City Attorney's Trial Division and just realized it really was not as fulfilling as I had hoped that it would be. Okay. Um, there was so much good there, but um, there was a lot that I knew for me. I just had to get deeper. I needed to be able to truly love up on people. And so at one point, I actually thought I would leave law and just... Um, 
be a kindergarten teacher because I thought I could really love up on little ones then in that way. Right. Um, and then when I actually went to a Ramos law uh, Christmas party and I saw all of these people crying about how much they love their jobs and they loved their clients and you know, they loved working, you know, for my brother and all of this stuff. And I, it was really touching to me. I remember crying during the stories and, I we left and I said I, now I have left a lot of law parties and cried but more because I wasted precious time <laughs> of my life there not because I was so touched and so it was a good reminder I thought wait a second there are people practicing law and doing it in a way where they really truly do love up their clients and so that's when I came to work here and so now what's nice is I get to help people um, who have been victimized in one way or another and, but there's, you know, there's funds to do so. And sometimes in victims work, there's not that. And yes. so, um, you know, I still have my hand in it because it, it's still, and it will always be something that's important to me. Um, and I still, you know, I, I'm a, you know, trauma hypnotherapist. And so I still treat victims that way. And, um, you know, I hold like a weekly call where, um, a bunch of people call in and we just, kind of raise what we're capable of, you know, just do a little more, do a little better. And so in those ways, um, I still get to have my hands in it. Yes. And at some point I'll do, I'll do something more because, um, it will just always matter to me. Well, I'll tell you what you have given us so much and I can't, I, the time is flying by, but I can't <laughs> stop. I cannot stop this show yeah. without talking about this love that you have for nature and mm-hmm. for animals. And I know that you um, live in Nevada and you, yeah. again, you're out here for a visit. So that's yeah. why you and I are in person. Yes. And so you live on a ranch yes. and you guys have horses and all this stuff. Can you tell us what your connection is to nature and the love of those animals and the some of the lessons that that mm. has taught you? Oh, absolutely. So growing up in that small town, we spent so much time in nature because one, we had, you know, a trailer that we lived in. So you can't fit a family of 10 in that (laughs) all day, every day for very long. So my mom would say, good kids play outside. (laughs) (laughs) And so we spent a lot of time playing in the outdoors. And um, because my dad, you know, we come from a ranching family, we always had horses and cattle and sheep and, you know, all sorts of animals. So that's really what bred that love for me. They brought me a lot of solace as a kid and I just really loved my time with them. Um, but growing up, I, as you know, as I aged, I began to think like, I will always at, like, at some point my site was, my site was always set on, I will have a ranch at some point. Um, it'll either be in Nevada or South Dakota, but you know, probably Nevada cause that's where my family is. And, um, and so when we had the opportunity to buy a ranch out there, we were like, all right, let's do it. And really I say buy a ranch. It was just a, you know, flat parcel of land. There wasn't anything on it. There wasn't a well, there wasn't power, there wasn't water. So for quite a while, I was actually working from Nevada, from the ranch while we were building it on a generator. And I would have to <laughs> run out and fill up my generator with gas in between, you know, client calls and things to make sure that, um, that my computer and my power could work. Um, but so that's where my love came from with the horses. So now, um, we have, I think six wild horses, um, two burros, which are donkeys. They're just wild donkeys. Um, we've got ducks and dogs and chickens and, you know, just the whole little farm life, a little pig, a mini pig. Uh, and so for me, the horses just provide such personal growth because they, you know, there's nothing like a wild animal 
that will show you your own personal holes and just kind of the areas that you really have to work on. They also bring out the best in you, which is a, a gift that they give, right? Yes. But, but in that, you also learn kind of, you know, your approach to things and your reactions to things. So yeah, give um, an example of that. You're working with these wild horses. What did, how did they show you something about yourself that you're like, wow, I didn't realize that. And I learned from this amazing animal. Yeah. So thankfully I have the oversight of one of my other brothers. Um, he's my neighbor next door to me. So about like a mile and a half away is his ranch. And, um, he told me one day, he said, sister, I, I see you with that horse and you're afraid of your horse. I'm like, I'm not afraid of my horse. Why would I be afraid of my horse? I love that horse. That horse is such a good horse. He's such a gentle horse. He's like, nope, it has nothing to do with the horse. That's all about you. He's like, I want you to take a look at how you are addressing fear and then go ahead and work with that horse. I'm like, what does deep. that mean? That's I know. Deep. And that brother can always come through with something. He's only three years older than me and he's just, he just has it, you know. And, um, and what I realized was this horse had taken off on me one time. I had a bunch of my nieces with me and we were all out riding and two of them decided to race. Well, I am feeling really responsible for the kids that are with me. And these horses all take off and none of us can get these horses to stop. I mean, they were just going. And our horses, especially, they're wild horses. They're pulled off the range. So they know they can survive without you. They don't need you. You know, you really have to build this relationship with them. And so after he had taken off on me, I always feared that he would do it again. And so what my brother had noticed was that here I am, you know, making very small moves with him. If he'd, you know, um, do something that I wasn't asking him for, I wouldn't really get on him. I would just kind of almost try to negotiate with him to coax him into doing what I needed instead of really treating it like a parent, you yes. know, that you really do have to, you create a relationship with your horses, but they're 1300 pound animals. You need to have some boundaries with them. And I wasn't doing that. I was too afraid to do that. And, and that had just developed out of that one experience where, you know, before that I didn't have a hard time setting boundaries, but once that boundary got broken, then I was really kind of, you know, subconsciously afraid of that. So that's one, or, you know, like riding the horses. Um, it's really easy when you're riding a horse to look down in front of the horse. You're just looking at what's directly in front of you. Yes. And you can apply that to life, right? When you're looking at what's directly in front of you, usually that comes quicker than you can prepare for. And what's done is done at that point. And it's really hard to keep a herd of horses on track when you're just looking at what's in front of you. When you're a leader and you look up and you can look at the horizon, you look to where you're going, then all of the things kind of take care of themselves as they go. You can make the adjustments. You do your part. To, to really make the adjustments to make it to sure. that end goal, right? So there's so many things in those horses. Um, one of them was a complete crazy horse. I mean, I, at, at first I didn't know why we got her. I just said, my goal is not to be Wonder Woman horse trainer. I want to learn and I want to do more and I want to help these horses, but I don't want to be killed or more maimed because of a horse. Yeah. And she would stomp her feet at the front gate, you know, when I would try to come into her corral. She and was, that's her protecting her territory, saying oh, back yeah. off. Oh, yeah. Like, okay. you're not coming in here. And um, I tried to walk her from my brother's house to mine. And, you know, she was rearing up and pawing. And um, at one point I thought, okay, I'm going to have to let this horse run if she takes off, which can be a felony to let a wild horse go. And I thought, well, I'm going to have to figure it out because this horse is going to hurt me. And what I did was I just applied what I know to be true with people and what I know to be true with myself. And that is consistency and a lot of love to, you know, show up same time every day, 
and make sure that she knows that I am I am not someone who will hurt her. She had been hurt really badly in the past. And so to be able to really show up and say like, okay, we're going to do this. I'm going to take good care of you. You're going to take really good care of me. Take some risks, but also make sure that I was always really safe. And um, the reward of that was that shortly after, I don't know, it was probably a couple months, um, but she... I had her in what's called a round pen. It's just a circular pen that you can work with horses in. And um, I had done some work with her. And then I was having her rest in the center. And my four-year-old niece came in and wrapped her arms around this horse's head. Oh, my goodness. And just they just sat forehead to forehead. And I thought, oh, now isn't that the way it goes? Like sometimes things seem too tough. Some people seem too hard. Some, you know, we have all of these life challenges But a little consistency, a little hard work, some boundaries, you know what I mean? Taking Mm -hmm. little risks. All of those things pay off. And then you have this moment where this horse had failed her third adoption. And so she was ready to go to slaughter before we took her. This horse would have been dead. Yes. And here she is, forehead to forehead with my four-year-old niece. And they were just in the most peaceful. I mean, they just sat there. Best moment ever. Yeah, where you go, ah, this is what it's all about, right? So I think they're healing in so many ways and um, you just see what they bring out. And, you know, I have kids come out, you know, adults come out, people struggling with addictions, things like that. They come out and they're around the horses and it's like there's this release that happens that it's nothing to do with me. And it's, you know, it's all to do with that horse. And so, yeah, for that, I mean, it's great. It's a great balance to law because I can, you know, be practicing and I, I have a barn that I you know, set up as my office and, um, I keep my barn doors open and I watch the horses run in the pasture and the dogs chase the antelope and the antelopes chase the dogs back. And, (laughs) you know, it's just, it's really such a perfect balance because sometimes law can get contentious. And then you look out there and you're like, and all is well with the world. Oh, Carrie, what an incredible time this has been. Mm -hmm. I've learned so much. I'm sure that the listeners have learned a ton if people wanted to get a hold of you, if they want, if they had questions about anything that we've talked about, you're just such a giving soul. If they had questions, mm-hmm. if you know, God forbid, something has happened to them in any part of their lives, or they were in some sort of an accident or a victim, uh, how would they best go about doing that? Yeah, I think probably through the Ramos Law website. I mean, you can reach me by email there. Um, they always, always can call my phone. Um, I mean, I am. Yeah, I'm an open book as far as what it comes to get all of us connected to what we need. That's so cool. So for anybody listening, if you have a question, you can call into our firm at 303-733-6353, and that can be routed to Carrie. We, uh, if you're listening to this out of anywhere in the country, we can get you there. That's right. Um, because Carrie does so much work out for our Arizona cases. Um, she just helps out in so many ways. So Carrie, thank you so much. I've had a great time. I hope this was fun for you. Thank you. This was wonderful. Oh man. (laughs) Always good to see you in person. Uh, we'll, we'll get a big hug in after this, but, uh, I hope you have a great rest of your day and continued success in everything you do. Awesome. Thanks for all you do for us.